If you'd open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, that's where we'll be this morning. But I want us to recall together some crucial verses from the first chapter that will help us make sense out of what we're going to encounter this morning. Chapter 1, verses 10, verse 10 and 11, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, verse 12, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man. As for the mystery of the seven stars, he says down in verse 20, that you saw in my right hand in the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So that imagery is important to us as we walk into the second and third chapters of the book of Revelation. Okay. Jesus is among his churches, as this imagery of him amongst the lampstands. It's Jesus walking amongst his churches in all his glory. He's walking there in love and powerful care. And in chapters 2 and 3, he has message a message for each of those churches according to their needs. And timelessly, those messages come into our day, written and recorded here for this church, for the church in Wake Forest, for the church called North Wake. It's for you and it's for me. So let us hear together what the Spirit is saying to the churches as we look together at the third and fourth of those letters um, to the seven churches. Down, we'll start down in verse 12. And uh, I know I was just prayed for, but I like to pray again. I just feel kind of naked if I preach without praying. So let's, uh, let's, let's pray together. Oh, Lord, can we ask too often and too much for grace to hear, to really hear your words, that they wouldn't pass over us to the person behind us or next to us or in front of us, but they would be heard by us. And Jesus, we ask you this. We ask that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches now in your name. Amen. <clears throat> so um, there's a map uh, of these seven churches. Now it's interesting, uh, here's Patmos. This is where John is. Remember, he's in exile for his faith, just off the coast. And we've seen him write to Ephesus and to Smyrna today, to Pergamum and to Thyatira, the third and the fourth of these churches. They make kind of a circuit where someone could carry this messages around. This book that he's speaking of, he could, could be carried around to all of these, all of these churches. But today... Pergamum and Thyatira, starting in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Jesus always introduces himself in these letters. And he does it in a way that's particularly relevant for the church itself. 
And this time he says he's one who has a two-edged sword. Um, always, it seems like, or commonly, he introduces himself and he's reflecting back to chapter 1 to that amazing revelation that John had of what Jesus was like. Jesus uses that imagery to introduce himself to the churches. So back in verse 16 of chapter 1, John said that in his right hand he held seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. It's symbolic, the sword of a word of judgment that Jesus will speak as the one that the Father has entrusted judgment to. Jesus referred to himself that way back in John 5. He says that the Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And this sword imagery probably has special um, significance for this particular city, as we'll see as the, as the letter to them unfolds. In verse 13, Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So Jesus knows something about each of the churches that he's writing to that he, wants to that he wants to bring to the fore. In this case, he knows where Pergamum, where the church of Pergamum dwells. He knows their zip code, right, to be sure. But more than that, he knows how very hard it is for them to live there as faithful followers of Jesus. It's hard because they live where Satan's throne is. Now, now that's a slogan for your chamber of commerce, right? <laughs> Pergamum, where Satan's throne is, right? That's the banner that you would put up over your city. Um, that, that would never happen, right? But we do have a major city in the United States that has an alternative chamber of commerce that is called the Sin City Chamber of Commerce, where they boldly and gladly... Um, Proclaim that, sponsored by all the adult businesses in that city. Vegas, of course, where Jake is visiting his son. So you pray for Jake this morning. But twice Jesus says it at the start of verse 13. He says they live where Satan's throne is. And then at the back end of the same verse, he says they live where Satan dwells. Clearly, it's a hard place to follow Jesus. It's a city where Satan has gained a foothold and is, in effect, ruling there. It's a city full of temples and idols. It was common in the day. They had a cult of um, a god called Asclepios, whose symbol was a serpent. Um, they had... Um, an altar to Zeus atop the mountain where the city was located that dominated the skyline of the city. It was a city known for emperor worship. It was the center for emperor worship in all of that part of Asia. Jesus knows all that. He knew what they were up against. He was mindful of it. He cared that they were facing such pressures and suffering. Jesus knows. And he knows, too, where you live. He knows the unique pressures that you face to compromise your faith. He knows the pressures at your school or where you work 
He knows the relentless emphasis on external beauty in our world and the crazy way we measure quality of life by our wealth and our stuff. He knows about the online porn that shows up unsolicited in your sidebar. He knows that somehow the cookies on your computer trigger those ads to pop up at just the right time so as to render them dangerous for your very soul. Jesus knows. He knows where you live. He knows what you face. And the words of commendation that he speaks to Pergamum, they're for you. Listen, listen to what he says in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Jesus commends this church for their perseverance. You remember he did that for Ephesus too? It was kind of like a five-fold affirmation in Ephesus of their perseverance and endurance. And he called then the church in Smyrna to be faithful unto death. Here again, Jesus delights in their faithful endurance. Three out of three of the churches so far, Jesus highlights their endurance and their need for it. Here's a spoiler alert. He's going to do it in the fourth church. He's going to do it in the sixth church. He's going to talk about patient endurance. You know, you get the sense that it really matters to Jesus that we persevere in our faith and not yield to the sirens all around us who would have us compromise. And you and I hear them every day relentlessly. But the church in Pergamum did not deny Jesus even in the face of martyrdom, actual martyrdom of one of their own, a man named Antipas. All we know about him is this verse, that he was a faithful witness who gave his life. Now, much later tradition assigns to this faithful brother death by burning him alive in a bull-shaped altar because he had cast out the demons that the people were worshiping. But even in the face of that, of martyrdom, the church of Pergamum was steadfast. They would not bend the knee to the pressure to worship other gods. Jesus knows the pressures you face. He knows, and he delights in your steadfastness. And he will help you stand firm. Now, here in our culture, the, the pressure that we face often, I think, is just the pressure to just be silent. Okay? Just be silent about our faith. Just don't speak of your faith. You can have your faith. You can enjoy your faith. Just don't talk about your faith. There was a survey recently. It's fascinating. Um, they... they rigged 10,000 job applications and submitted them to employers all around the place, 10,000 of them. And they found that just the mere mention of any religious affiliation on your resume could significantly reduce your likelihood of getting a call from that company about a job. Now, it's worse for Muslims but it's also a negative thing for Christians, in this, according to the survey. And this is what the authors write. 
They say, yes, religious discrimination in hiring seems to be very, very real. Our study seems to confirm a social norm in America that religious expression should be compartmentalized and private, something kept at home or brought out only in specific limited circumstances. Publicly identifying oneself with a certain belief system can be a faux pas with real and negative consequences. They go on and say many Christians intuitively sense this norm. We feel that we should be discreet, if not silent, about our faith. And this creates a tension because scripture, they say, presents our faith as good news to be shared, as light to be shown, as salt to be tasted, not a hobby to be hidden. And Jesus knows you face this. He is with you. So be bold and loving at school and where you work and in your neighborhood and with your family. Jesus is with you and he commends you for your steadfastness. That's what he does to the church at Pergamum and for their endurance in the faith in the face of martyrdom. May it be so with us. But, as is the pattern in these letters, typically, now he has a word of correction or rebuke for the church in Pergamum. Verse 14. It says, but I have a few things against you. In spite of all this good, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So I want you to see that this is the depth of love that Jesus has for his churches. Though we are doing well in one area, Jesus longs for more for us. He longs for us to be safe from sin and experience the pleasure of of God in all of our life. So in Pergamum, to be enduring well even in the face of martyr level pressures to deny Christ does not give you a pass on other areas of temptation and sin. Jesus loves them too much. And so his concern for the church in Pergamum is that they were tolerating false teaching in their midst. Now not all of them are buying into it, but they are allowing it to exist. They let it creep into their life change classes, basically. The particular teaching that, that some are ensnared by is linked symbolically back to an Old Testament pagan prophet named Balaam who apparently aided an enemy king named Balak to put a stumbling block in the path of God's people, Israel. Now the Old Testament teaching about this angle on Balaam's influence is scarce, but Numbers 25 may catch the essence of it as it says this. It says, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. And these invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal, the god of Peor, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So sexual immorality led to idolatrous feasts and idolatrous worship. I think you hear the similarities. Um, 
And it appears that those who were advocating that it was permissible for those in the church to participate in idolatrous meals may have also led to sexual immorality. So that seems to be what was happening. There were people that were saying it's okay to participate in these meals even though they're idolatrous worship and that that eventually led to entanglement in sexual immorality as well. As in the numbers reference though, the, the language of sexual sin and unfaithfulness is often used to represent spiritual unfaithfulness, but they often seem to go together. Spiritual infidelity and literal sexual immorality are often cohabitating together, and both of them may well be in view here. So in a bit, we'll see that these same two twin pitfalls, um, idolatry and sexual immorality, are also present in the next church, Thyatira, that we'll also look at this morning. So we'll delay our focus on the second pitfall of sexual immorality a bit. Let's talk about idolatry. You know, I think it must have seemed a really harmless thing at first, uh, eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. What's the big deal about that? And in some cases, for some believers, it truly was totally innocuous, right? I mean, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 said, Therefore, as to the eating of food offers to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. But scholars help us see that Paul was probably writing about a different scenario than that was happening in Pergamum and Thyatira. In Corinth, where Paul's writing, the discussion seemed to center around meat purchased in a market that had been offered to idols at some point. And while that creeped some people out, especially those coming out of an idol-worshiping background, others had no qualms about it. And Paul said, let our brothers' consciences dictate for us. Let us curb our participation in such freedoms so as not to lead our brother or sister into what he would say was sin for them. But he says eating the meat itself is not really that significant. But here in the churches of Revelation 2, it's much more likely that this involved actual participation in idolatrous meals and worship that would include or lead to actual sexual acts of immorality. And Jesus clearly forbids this. He allows no participation in any idolatrous acts of worship, no matter how good the meat is. Okay. And this goes all the way back to the first of the Ten Commandments, right? You shall have no other gods before me. It was and it is a zero-tolerance policy for idolatrous influence in the church. The, the prophet Isaiah had a lot to say about this, and I, I found it interesting the way the New American Standard Bible puts this verse in Isaiah chapter 2. For you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with influences from the east. They're soothsayers like the Philistines, and they strike bargains with the children of foreigners. They render it just the influences from those pagan worshipers coming into their, their culture, their worship, was enough to cause God to bring judgment upon them. And so the problem with the church in Pergamum and the church in Thyatira seems to have been one of tolerance. They weren't championing these beliefs, but they were letting them in. 
They tolerated idolatrous teaching. That's actually the language that's used in the church to Thyatira. The next church we'll look at. Look down at verse 20 where Jesus says, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. As one pastor put it, the church in Thyatira was more tolerant than Jesus. So what idolatrous teaching must we be wary of? Who are the Balaams and the Jezebels of our day? You know, I've had the chance to uh, travel to India on a number of occasions and walk the streets of places like Calcutta and Delhi. And it is mind-boggling to see the plethora of idols prominently displayed for all to see and all to offer sacrifice to. And for a Westerner to walk down those streets, you, you just think, so many idols. But Christian thinkers here in our culture have enumerated an equally stunning number of possible idols that are making inroads into our culture. And these different Christian thinkers' lists include things like wealth, the approval of others, control, public success at work, our image on social media, science, our children, our comfort, our retirement, our safety and security, our, our approval, our, our health and beauty, our national security, our guns, our cars, our fame and celebrity, collegiate and professional sports, and the lists go on and on and on of potential idols. I wonder if our Indian brothers and sisters, if they came to visit us and they drove up and down Capitol Boulevard and they saw all the car dealerships, if they wouldn't say, so many idols. How can these things be idolatrous? It helps to think clearly about what we mean when we say idolatry. Pastor John Piper helps us. He says, it's the thing loved or the person loved more than God, wanted more than God, desired more than God, treasured more than God, enjoyed more than God. It could be a girlfriend. It could be good grades. It could be the approval of other people. It could be success in business. It could be sexual stimulation. It could be a hobby or a musical group that you are following or a sport or your immaculate yard. It's the thing loved or the person loved more than God. Listen to this provocative writing by Pastor Nicholas McDonald. He says, hello, I'm an idol. Don't be afraid, it's just me. I notice you're turned off by my name, idol. It's okay, I get that a lot. Allow me to rename myself. I'm your family, your bank account, your sex life, the people who accept you your career, your self-image, your ideal spouse, your law-keeping. I'm whatever you want me to be. I'm whatever you think about while you drive on the freeway. I'm your anxiety when you lay your head on the pillow. I'm wherever you turn when you need comfort. I'm what your future cannot live without. When you lose me, you're nothing. When you have me, you're the center of existence. You look up to those who have me. You look down on those who don't. You're controlled by those who offer me. You're furious at those who keep you from me. When I make a suggestion to you, you're compelled. When you cannot gratify me, I consume you. 
No, I cannot see you or hear you or speak back to you. But that's what you like about me. No, I am never quite what you think I am, but that's why you keep coming back. And no, I don't love you, but I'm there for you whenever you need me. What am I? I think you know by now. You tell me. Are you listening to teaching? On the web or wherever, that it exalts money or sex or success or any of these kinds of things inordinately that urges you to trust and hope and strive for these things first above and before God in the hope of being satisfied. If you are, Jesus has a word for you. In verse 16, he says, therefore repent. And if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. King Jesus commands us to repent of these false hopes. And this is his language of love for us. Remember, he wants us to be free of their tentacles and he wants us to avoid that judgment that he pledges to bring upon false prophets and teachers who peddle such thing. He will wield that sword that he identified himself as holding when he introduced himself at the beginning of this letter. A double-edged sword. During this time, there was something called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It was really the rule of Rome. It was enforced by the edge of their sword. And once again here with the sword imagery, Jesus uses symbolism that exalts him above all the rulers and powers of their day. He has the sword. But as as he always does, Jesus ends his third letter with an invitation and a promise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So Jesus promises his faithful ones two things. Hidden manna and a white rock with a new name written on it. How about that? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So there's a plethora of interpretive options about what these things might mean. We trust Jesus that they would be good. But here's here's probably the most delightful understanding that I ran across. It comes from Professor uh, G.K. Beale. And he says, The hidden manna refers to the food not now visible to be consummately consumed at the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19 and thus represents to us fellowship with Christ. The reference to the manna as hidden means that it will be revealed to God's people at the end of time and possibly beginning at death. It is to be contrasted with the food sacrificed to idols which may be consumed now but will exclude participation in the eternal feast later. It's a beautiful way to think about it. He continues and he he says this about the second reward, the white stone. He says, in light of the Jewish use of stones as votes of acquittal, in other words, if you were in court, they gave you a black stone, that was bad. If they give you a white stone, you were acquitted and you were not guilty. He said, in light of that practice, 
or as the stones, white stones as a passive admission to special occasion, it was like a ticket to get into a special event. He says, in light of those practices, the white stone probably refers to the reversal of the overcomer's guilty verdict issued by the world's institutions because of refusal to participate in the emperor's idolatry, which itself becomes the invitation pass to take part in Jesus' supper. So those white stone with that new name on it is an invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb is the way he understands it. And that new name is often associated with a new identity. When God gives a new name in Scripture, it's often indicative of a, of a whole new life in relationship with God. And that's what waits those who conquer and resist the idle sirens of our day. He who has an ear, Jesus says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's look briefly at the, the next letter, the fourth letter, which is to the church in Thyatira. And you can see it again. We go around the horn here. Thyatira is right there, the fourth church. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So Jesus introduces himself to this church as the Son of God. It's interesting. Uh, the, the citizens of Thyatira worship two deities who they considered the sons of Zeus. And so here Jesus counters their title with his title of the Son of God. And Thyatira was also a city renowned for her production of a unique kind of bronze. And so this imagery of Jesus captures the attention with his bronze feet, captures the attention of a city renowned for her metalwork. And he commends the church with beautiful encouragement. Take heart in this church. He says, I know your works. Your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. So again, endurance is praised by Jesus. He knows how hard it is to live in the culture of Thyatira with the cultural pressures of emperor worship there as well. And that emperor worship had permeated their guilds, their unions, so to speak. And he commends them for their perseverance and faithfulness. He says that you are a loving church. Unlike the Ephesians, their love is growing. Their latter works exceed their first. See, this is the intent of Jesus, that we should love him all the more steadily. This is what brings the commendation and the pleasure of God on your life. This is what satisfies the thing you are longing for deep down, to hear God's pleasure on your life, to enduringly, increasingly love Jesus is what brings his greatest pleasure, to love him all the more. But again, Jesus has a concern for his people in Thyatira. And again, it's, it's the same concern, basically, as in Pergamum. Verse 20, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So Jezebel. So if you went back, you checked the church role in Thyatira, 
you probably wouldn't find anyone in the church named Jezebel. Um, Nor should you ever name your daughter Jezebel. It's symbolic. Again, again, we're in Revelation, and symbols are the, the, you know, the soup du jour, right? It's the heavy symbolism. It's symbolic of an Old Testament character who was the wife of perhaps the most wicked king in all of Israel, Ahab, and, and together they led the people into Baal worship and into sorcery, and Jezebel herself kept roughly 900 false prophets at her beck and call. 900. So this leader in the church um, in Thyatira was evidently allowed to seduce the church into those same two traps that Pergamum had faced. Sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. Since we already touched on idolatry from the perspective of Pergamum. Let's focus on the pitfall of sexual immorality for a minute. But let me add add one perspective first to this matter of the cultural pressure to worship idols that was on these two churches. Um, The craftsmen guilds, again, they're like unions on steroids, okay? Um, Were huge in this city of Thyatira, historians tell us, and if you wanted to excel in your business, you needed to belong to the respective guild that represented your craft. Could have been shoemaking, cloth dyeing, bronze smithing was huge here, whatever. If you were not a part of the guild, business suffered. Now the guilds became greatly entangled in the idolatrous worship of the day, especially emperor worship. Professor Craig Keener says this, he says, Thyatira was known for its merchants, crafts, and their guilds. Those who participated in this aspect of public economic life would risk a substantial measure of their livelihood by refusing to join trade guilds. The guild meetings, however, included a common meal dedicated to the guild's patron deity, a meal thereby off-limits to Christians. Starting in this general period, aspects of the imperial cult also begin to affect nearly every trade guild, so they worship the emperor as well. So there's significant economic pressure, not only to be part of the guilds, but when you join the guild, to join them in their idolatrous feasts. So imagine that you have a business appointment. It's a big one. And your client wants to meet you at a gentleman's club, the most ridiculously named thing I've ever heard of, a gentleman's club. If you want to make your sale, you're expected to be there. Now the pressure, some of you have experienced that very pressure. It's more subtle often, I'm sure. And you may be facing it where you work. You have to sign off on certain company policies or positions on the issues of our day or your career will suffer. Jesus commends those who are willing to suffer economic loss and be faithful to him. He says, in essence, It's worth it. But now let's go on to that second pitfall. It's entirely possible here that sexual immorality, as it's used here, is also a reference to spiritual infidelity. 
But it's also likely that there's actual sexual immorality of a truly sexual nature caught up in that. So let's talk at it from that angle. Because without question, sex is one of the great idols of our day as well as their day and every day in between. Okay? Author C.S. Lewis put it cleverly when he wrote, You can get a large audience together for a striptease act. That is to watch a girl undress on the stage. But now suppose you went to a country where you could fill a theater simply by bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so that everyone could see just before the lights went out that it contained a lamb chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that something had gone wrong in that country and their appetite for food? Indeed, something has gone terribly wrong with our appetites, especially for sex. We are asking sexual, simply naked sexual experience to do something it was not meant to do, to bring us abiding satisfaction and deep down joy. There's a fellow named Benedict Grishel, and he wisely writes this. He says, perhaps one of the most persistent and obviously invalid assumptions of our civilization is that sexual behavior brings happiness. He says, the media trumpet the message. Sex brings happiness. If this were true, we would indeed live in an earthly paradise and the world would be Happy Valley. I suppose that half the people you meet on a bus or in a shopping center or even at church on Sunday have had some sexual experience during the preceding few days. He says, it is the observation of an old celibate from way back that they are not all so very happy. If sex brought happiness, the world would shine like the sun at least half the time. Celibates, he says, need not try to convince themselves that chaste celibacy is the road to earthly bliss. But on the other hand, they need not feel deprived of the key to happiness. If there's a single key to contentment, it cannot be sexual experience. And to those who have fallen into Jezebel's pitfall... Jesus writes these strong words of warning against sexual immorality. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. I I hope you are shocked by those words. They are intended to do just that. It should make you want to run as far away from modern Jezebels who teach and preach to us. Yes, they are preaching in our churches of some kind of this new sexual ethic or that new sexual ethic Departing from the scripture. It is a teaching you should flee with all the speed that you have. And the judgment is in language so severe as to be stunning to us. I will strike her children dead. I do not think that that means that this literal woman's literal physical children would die. But I think it's a reference to the judgment of God, which may very well include death upon her spiritual children or her followers. That those who follow Jezebel's ways into idolatry and sexual immorality face the severest of judgments. 
verse 21 calls us to a clear warning. Read it again with me. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Is that you? I mean, is that you? Hear the kind, strong, loving invitation of Jesus to repent. For your life's sake, repent. This is a bondage that will take you places you do not want to go. And there's even more sobering language that follows in verse 24. It says to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. So amidst Jesus' exhortation for the faithful in the church at Thyatira to hold fast until he comes, because they're faithful, they've just allowed this teaching in. He says, stay faithful. But he mentions something, I'm sure it caught your attention, the deep things of Satan. It's kind of an eye-grabbing phrase right in the middle of it there. And scholars are at loss to exactly know what those deep things might be. But they often point to secret or hidden teachings that go beyond the words of Scripture. Since this Jezebel claimed to be a prophetess, she may have been claiming to have received deeper revelations from God that superseded the Scriptures. And Jesus here is saying that no, these are not the deep things of God at all. These are deep things of Satan. How would you know? Well, do they supersede the scriptures? Do they contradict the scriptures? Do they usurp the scriptures in any way? Then they would be, according to this train of thinking, not the deep things of God, but the deep things of Satan. But there's a simpler approach um, that's worth us thinking through. What if the deep things of Satan are simply what Jesus pointed out to us to be wary of in verse 20? Look at verse 20 with me again. I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. What if those are Satan's deep things? the things that seduce you to practice sexual immorality or idolatry. How must that perspective shape the way you think about the porn that you are viewing? Could this be one of the deep snares Satan sets for a human soul? Those fantasy relationships that keep playing about in your mind. The person you wish you were married to. Could that be one of Satan's deep snares for your soul? A handful of years ago, um, Men's Health Magazine summarized the following eight harmful effects of porn. It is progressive. It will take you places you do not want to go. 
It creates unrealistic expectations, expectations your spouse will find devastating. It increases casual sex, multiple partners, and cheating on your spouse. It amplifies emotional problems. It creates unhealthy sexual bonds with virtual partners that interfere bonding with real partners. It creates, it counterfeits rather, true intimacy. It disrupts real relationships, inviting a third party to invade the relationship. And it hurts your spouse, causing many wives to think they are simply not good enough. To which we could add, It entangles you with the deep things of Satan. And so Jesus says, because he loves you, you're in this room. And you're hearing him say in love, repent. Repent. Turn away. Come and find grace to be free. For the first time or for the hundredth time, but come and find grace. In me. And in closing, Jesus makes a stunning promise that we'll just read. To those who remain faithful to him, he says, To the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even I myself have received, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. We will reign and rule with Jesus, he's saying. And we will get the morning star. It's interesting, Professor Grant Osborne says that Roman legions carried the symbol of the morning star Venus on their banners to depict Roman invincibility. And in this context, Christ would be saying that the only final sovereignty and power lay with himself and his victorious followers. But elsewhere, Jesus himself is the bright and morning star. Part of his meaning here could be simply, we get him in all of his glory. So this morning, I come in early at dawn, and I see it. It's the bright star remaining in the sky. And I think, man, I get that. Or better, I get him. Church, it's worth it. It's going to be so worth it. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. And amen.